Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Empire. Gaming is not a way, but the way of life. Esports is a sport of the internet, because gaming is universal, global, fully online, and exists fully digitally. And crypto, for example, and everything that has come out of crypto is the currency of the internet, or the transaction kind of ecosystem of the internet. So to us, they're just hand in hand. So we just see gaming will continue to be kind of the sport of the generation, the sport of the internet, the sport of the metaverse, whatever you want to call it. That's Steven Sauls, co-founder and CEO of Rivalry, a platform where gaming and gambling are converging. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. This was one of my personal favorite conversations that I've had since starting this show some 250 episodes ago. I'm 49, cutting edge 49, but still largely the technologies that Stephen Sauls and I talk about, and I can admit this, remain foreign concepts to the younger version of me. Rivalry wants to go next level in immersive engagement with gaming at the center and gambling as a key growth avenue. In between, we discussed life on and off a device, and it was really interesting. Our guest this week is Steven Sauls. He's the co-founder and the CEO of Rivalry, which is a global esports-focused sportsbook and media company. So let's take a look at sports, betting, gaming, esports, all in the metaverse. Hey, Steven, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks Good. for having me. Uh, give me a little background on Rivalry. What, what, what's the company do? Sure, Rivalry is a global sports book. We focus on esports, which is competitive gaming, but we offer everything on traditional sports. We have our own original, call it casino type product we built, which is, you know, Marble Race meets Mario Kart in a cyberpunk kind of world, but very much just a global regulated sports book and a large kind of media entity as well. So we produce a ton of original content, 20 plus social media properties, 150, 160 brand partners. Rivalry is the most engaged monthly uh, esports focused betting property globally. I think we're top five across all sports books in terms of monthly measure engagement on social and content. So yeah, very much like a meme, shitposty, ridiculous consumer brand with a focus on esports betting. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting bumper sticker or T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, give me your background here. How, how did you end up here? I, I read some of your bio, and it's you've kind of been, just been in gaming and and in this world for a very long time. I grew up with it. Can you kind of just give me some background of how you landed here? Yeah, I think like a lot of people my age, I played a lot of video games when I was younger. So I played, you know, early two thousands. You had Xbox Live that came out. I think it was like two thousand three, two thousand four. Played that. I played Rainbow Six on Xbox. Sent me competitively play with my twin brother. Then we played a lot of World of Warcraft, RuneScape, Eve Online, like just kind of everything. But very, very addicted to video games. You know, our, our entire high school experience was spent on game servers. I'd say we didn't have much of an in-person high school experience, but very addicted to games. And then professionally, I went into capital markets. I worked in, in finance, 
at, a, at an investment bank for about four to five years, but was really interested in what was happening in the gaming ecosystem. But now, from both like an investment and business building perspective, as well as just like personal interest, continued to play games, Counter-Strike, all this kind of stuff. And then in the 2013, 2014, you had these massive in-game economies that were being spurred. So multi-billion dollar real money, third-party economies around some of the biggest competitive games. So Counter-Strike and Dota 2 being two of the bigger ones for that. And I was active in that marketplace and trading items and buying and selling. It was like NFTs before NFTs. Yeah. It was in-game aesthetics. So then I met the two guys behind one of the bigger ones that I was using, which they happen to be based in Toronto, which is where I'm based. And we got talking. We was, I was looking to invest. And then we formed a, just a friendship and a partnership. And then late 2016, we said, hey, you know, let's raise a bit of money for this marketplace. And maybe there's other stuff we can do together. So I left my finance job, went in with those guys. We identified sports betting as a product that this demographic, so under 30s that were that grew up on the internet, so basically that were looking to participate in that ecosystem now, which was just different than what the types of products their parents use, I guess you could say. It's kind yeah. of like what Robinhood was to Charles Schwab and, and all this kind of stuff in fintech. And it was comparable, so we thought let's let's build a, a great consumer experience and consumer brand for, for that, for this demographic. and. Just build a great kind of entertainment brand, and that was what was exciting for us. And kind of early 2017, we raised some money and then started down the path of, of doing that. All right, um, l- let me stay in betting with you for a moment. Then, okay, what what? Sure. How can you describe what the customer slash fan experience is in how you describe interacting with betting as opposed to people on middle age, people my age, and how they interact yeah, with yeah. betting? Yeah, yeah. So the standard experience of betting is hyper transactional. It's like going to the bank, and even if you go to sign up for these older school betting sites, you're met with like a medical form of KYC. <laughs> that's ask of you. It, it, it's not a, it's not a modern user experience. It's the same as signing up for Charles Schwab or Scotia Eye Trading Canada versus like a Well Simple here or a Robinhood, which are like modern interfaces, modern user experiences for a younger consumer coming into these consumer experiences. Like it's a fundamentally different experience top to bottom. At the end of the day, you're still buying Apple stock on Robinhood. You're buying Apple stock on Charles Schwab. But anyone going through that experience will feel that these are like totally different products because it's just building modern consumer experiences that are based on the internet for global audiences. So that's that, that's like one big fundamental difference is just like the type of user experience that you have. And then the way that they engage specifically with sports betting is way less transactional. If you look at a mature sports better that are you know, late 30s and up, they are trying to grind out the sports book for the win. They'll take really sharp odds. They're looking for bonuses and promotions, all this kind of stuff. It's not to say our users are not trying to do that. It's just it's, it's way, the volume is way less of that. And what they're really here to do is it's something that's added to their experience of watching competitive gaming or watching esports. And there are many cases where they will bet on what is mathematically a huge underdog that is probably guaranteed to lose the money just because they want to be part of like the meme. They want to, they want to tweet at their favorite pro or their player with their bet slip, their rivalry bet slip that, Hey, like I'm behind you and supporting you. And what I compare it to or liken it to is like GameStop and AMC and what was happening with like yeah. stocks, you know, a year or so ago where people, if you look at what was happening in like the Reddit communities, which is the same as like the gaming communities and are the demographic we serve, nobody, yes, everybody wanted to make money on GameStop. And listen, like I was a financial analyst. Like I was a, I was an equity research analyst covering stocks for five years. Like in most of my class were hedge funds. Like I, I really understood that game. I bought GameStop knowing full well that probably not going to make any money. It's idiotic, but why did I buy it? I bought it while a lot of other people bought it. Like you want to be part of the meme. Like there was like a movement that was, that was happening, right? Like there was a, there was an entertainment experience that was now paired with an investing experience. We all wanted to make money, but if we didn't make money, the experience was also kind of worth it. Like for the meme, to be honest. 
And it's the same as what's happening with like the Renaissance in, in, in trading cards. If you look at what's happening in Pokemon cards and you look at what's happening in trading cards, which has had a huge renaissance as well a couple of years, over the last couple of years, and the value's gone up, it's not because all of a sudden people like rediscovered value in Pokemon cards. It's because opening up $100,000 worth of Pokemon cards on Instagram Live, Snapchat, or YouTube and garnering a huge amount of views and getting into that community, the clout, the clout of that experience has intrinsic value that whether or not you get a card that makes the investment worth it doesn't matter as much as it used to. So this is what's changing with consumer experiences. And we see, we talked to a lot of like kind of venture capitalists and people about this is what used to be a transactional consumer experience, whether it's investing in trading cards, art, stocks, sports betting, et cetera, is turning now into, for better or for worse, is turning into like an entertainment experience first and a transactional investment experience second. So that's the way that we approach it. And that approach fundamentally means like the entire company has to be built differently. The entire product has to be built differently. So that's, that's the huge difference. So the motivations have changed. Um, Completely. What, was that noticeable to you in your young experience? Did you just not relate to the transactional nature of what was happening by people that were older than you? How did the, I, I guess what Completely. I'm asking is, how do you think this happened that we've had this kind of motivational shift? Well, one, like a, attention spans have shifted a lot. So every successive generation has a smaller attention span than the prior one. So, you know, when I grew up, I could sit and watch a two and a half, three hour movie. I didn't need to be on my phone or computer simultaneously doing that. Try and watch a 18 year old, uh, put them in front of a two and a half hour movie and see if they're going to go on their phone once or not, or watching sports and see if they're going to be on their phone and their laptop simultaneously and doing a bunch of other things at the same time. The attention spans have just shrunk. So as attention spans shrink, the, the, the kind of dopamine response that you're satisfied with the experience that you're having increases. Like it needs to fire more frequently for you to kind of enjoy what you're doing. And that again, for better or for worse, this is just what's been happening over the last 100, 150 years. You know, people in the late, uh, in the early 20s could sit around a radio where you would literally go to your neighbor's house to sit around the radio and listen to it because your neighbor had the radio and you didn't have the radio. And then the next generation, you can even find news clippings and articles of this. It's like, I've looked back this far. The 40s and 50s, you had like tube television and color television. But again, it was like one or two people in the neighborhood that had it and you would go to their house to watch. But the kids that grew up on that television, which was one or two channels, couldn't comprehend how their parents could sit around a radio and be interested. And their parents that grew up in the 20s thought their kids were insane. And then you, and then you had cable television, right? And it was like, okay, well, now rather than like the 20 or 30 channels, I got to look at the TV guide on, I got like the military channel, the tech channel. And that generation, which is like kind of my generation, I look back at my parents who looked at TV guides, I'm like, that's totally insane. And you had the YouTube generation where you can find the most nuanced niche experience thing that you're looking for. And you look back at the cable generation, you're like you guys are nuts that you actually were entertained by this stuff. So it just goes on and on and on. And I think that's, that's just been like the nature of content and the nature of entertainment. And sports betting has just not evolved with that in the last one. I, I got to tell you, though, as someone who uh, loves great television, when I watch YouTube, I go, I don't know how you people are entertained by that. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it, like that, that will forever be the case where every successive generation is you know, eventually the Gen Z's are going to be parents. They're going to look at their kids and think their kids are insane. When we look at Gen Z and think they're nuts. Right? Yeah. So, Okay. Um, let me ask you this. I know you're more involved in uh, esports and betting and gaming and all of that, but I do wonder just what your perspective is, especially in this line of thought where getting people to sit down and watch a movie, let alone a game for two and a half, three hours, where do you kind of see the role for traditional sports and their content offerings in this new world that is in the metaverse? Yeah. Like, 
traditional sports viewership among the younger demographic has been declining pretty consistently for a long time. So in many places in the world, competitive gaming or esports for under 25 is more viewed than the than the most popular traditional sport in the market. And that's only going to continue. The reason for that is if you look at the average esport, the number of data points on the screen averages between 50 to 60. So watch, go on Twitch and watch any competitive esport. There is a ton of shit coming in your face constantly. Like, first of all, the pacing and speed of the game is insane relative to like baseball. So that's why, so baseball fans on average are, I think 62, 63, the average esports fan is 21, 22. There's a whole like joke where for every baseball fan that dies, two esports fans are born, but that's kind of true. So if you look at what's happening, if you watch a typical esport, the pacing of it and the rate of it is so ridiculously fast. And there's about 50 to 60 data points on the screen, whereas every individual player, it's mostly five versus five games. Every individual player has a little uh, icon and a little kind of bar showing like their health, their utility, what, what items they have, weapons they have, if they've used it, if they've not, the time, uh, like the, the little mini map in the corner, everyone's moving around, like the, the abilities or special abilities that have been used or not used. It's just infinitely more entertaining and engaging for someone that needs that level of engagement. So our expectation is that traditional sports is going to, again, like from a generational shift, it will just decline and interest and decline in viewership. And it already has been happening for a very long time. So we just expect that to continue. Specific to the metaverse, gaming is just going to be, again, like the feature content of the feature sport of the metaverse. And I think we also think about the metaverse in a very different way than maybe the media talks about it. And yeah. I think it's, as, as do I think most people who grew up playing games don't under... That's what's been very, there's a side tangent, but what's been very odd about all this metaverse stuff is anyone that grew up playing massively multiplayer role playing games or just video games in general that's under the age of 25 does not identify with the metaverse that you see in the media. It makes absolutely no sense to them, myself included. So I grew up playing World of Warcraft for five years, which was to me uh, a very deep open world with lots of people that I hung out with. I played Second Life, I played Eve Online, I played EverQuest, like all these games. And the metaverse games that exist out there or the world that exists out there, including what's coming out of Meta or Facebook, is of lower quality and less depth than the stuff that I played 15 years ago. And I think everyone feels the same way about it. So we don't look at the metaverse as like a video game-like Ready Player One universe. That doesn't make any sense, to be honest. The metaverse for us, and, and I've now heard this from a lot of people, and, and this is now where I think it's becoming a more sophisticated insight into what it actually is. The metaverse is just when the percentage of your time spent per day looking at a screen is greater than not looking at a screen. To us, that's the metaverse. And like that, that it, if you are of the Gen Z, let's say demographic, yeah. that's already the case for you. So to us, that's the metaverse. So when digital experiences take over your uh, physical experiences, then the way that you value your time and the way that you value your goods changes. So, and so like, I've never understood why people are so confused, why people are going to spend, you know, a couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars on in-game skins or aesthetics for their items or their character or whatever that may be. But if you're spending more of your time there or more of your time digitally than you are physically, what's the difference between me buying like, you know, uh, an Hermes tie if I'm going into the office every day versus like a hundred percent yeah, hundred percent for my character online? It, 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 like, it's the same thing, right? So. You're buying That's things of value for your life, right? And people, yeah, and people's tastes change through time. So those tangible items that you're talking like a, about yeah, that were important to some people, well, if your life is spent digitally, then these items are going to be, I agree with you. It's just a different way of thinking yeah, like about what's, it. Yeah. What's, what's the Rolex for your digital life? Like that's why people <laughs> spend money on stuff like that. Yeah. Like, it, you know, uh, certain NFTs are the Rolex flex equivalent 
for online. But if we're all starting to spend more time online than physically, then why wouldn't you invest in that? Yeah. If that's the thing that appeals to you. So it all makes total sense to us. So, so in that world, we look at, we've been saying this for like five, six years, esports is the sport of the internet because gaming is universal, global, wholly online. It exists totally digitally. And crypto, for example, and everything that has come out of crypto is the currency of the internet or the transaction kind of ecosystem of the, of the internet. So to us, they're just hand in hand. So we just see gaming will continue to be kind of the sport of this generation, the sport of the internet, the sport of the metaverse, whatever you want to call it. And as more people's time is spent digitally, then the aggregate amount of viewership and interest in esports will naturally only continue to go up as it has been for a very long time. Guys, if you're looking for that extra confidence when it's time to have a little bit of fun, let me tell you about BlueChew.com. BlueChew is a unique online service. It delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but it comes in chewable form and it's at a fraction of the cost. BlueChew's tablets will help you combat all forms of ED. Plus, it's an online prescription service. No visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy, and it ships right to your door in a discreet package. The process is really simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you are approved, you'll receive your prescription within days, and the best part, all done online. BlueChew's licensed medical providers are going to work with you to find the right ingredient and the strengths for your personal subscription. Plus, their tablets are made in the United States. They prepare, they ship direct, and it's so much cheaper than going through a pharmacy. And here's a special deal for our listeners. Try BlueChew free when you use our promo code FUTURE, F-U-T-R, at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code FUTURE, F-U-T-R, to receive your first month free. And we thank BlueChew for being a sponsor of this show. There could be two things happening at once. I wonder if you agree with this, because you had mentioned Robin Hood earlier. And for me growing up, um, the barrier for entry and even understanding how to be involved in the stock market was extraordinarily high. Robin Hood simplified that process for everybody, including myself, for that matter. But it, it simplified it and made the barrier for entry and understanding of it, even if it is rudimentary. It made it there for you so that you could kind of get in if you wanted to. I think what you're talking about with the metaverse for people my age that didn't grow up in your generation is they're baby stepping us into this. And you're looking at it going, why are you baby stepping this? We've already lived it. But there's a generational gap here, I think, on both sides of it. You know what I mean? I agree with that. That's fair. I, I, I think. The older generation still, though, thinks it's like totally insane, like they can't they can't comprehend board apes and all this kind of stuff that's been coming out of the space right because it, it's totally incomprehensible but to be fair you can find documentaries you know there's a 60 minute documentary from the mid-2000s of people that were making a full-time living in second life as real estate agents and i remember <laughs> i was like 14 15 i was 14 or 15 years old when this stuff came out i was watching this on youtube i was playing second life at the time and i thought it was a little crazy even for me then but i was in the ecosystem experience and, and knew it but there are people now that are in their mid thirties to late thirties that when they were teenagers, people were doing this stuff and it seems that they still can't 15 years later, they still aren't able to wrap their head around it. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I think, I think the onboarding funnel is there, but also ultimately it, it doesn't matter as much when 40% of the global population is under the age of 30. It's the largest generational cohort in history. Yeah. And that's just an inevitable tidal wave. And whether or not the older demographic or generation has interest in coming into it or not, it will still 
be successful and it will still be what's going to happen. So, okay. Um, give me your sense of games and esports, where it is right now, where you think it's going, and what genres do you think will be popular as we head into the future? The most popular games right now are all PC games. So console is very popular in North America, but I think people that live in North America that will have like a PlayStation or Xbox don't realize this is a bit of a North American and call it European phenomenon. Most places in the world, Latin America, Southeast Asia, Asia, most people can't afford and, and most homes don't have consoles. And therefore, like the competitive ecosystem and the volume of players is not really that developed there. So we expect that to continue to be the case as well. PCs is a little more affordable, but many go to PC bangs or PC centers. That's like a huge part of culture. So that's why PC's been so big. So right now, the three biggest games are League of Legends, Counter-Strike, and Dota. They're all five versus five PC games. League of Legends and Dota are like five versus five strategy games, and Counter-Strike is a five versus five PC shooting game. These have been popular. Counter-Strike's been a professional esport for 20 years. League of Legends has been popular for over a decade, as has Dota. The big shift that we're really seeing right now is there are, there's always kind of different PC games coming in and, in and out. There's a new one called Valorant. Valorant is a five versus five shooting game from the same publisher as, as League of Legends. This is becoming very popular. We expect this to be a top three, top five esports soon. And then the other thing that we're very bullish on is mobile esports, which will sound even probably crazier to, to I think some, some people in a, of an older demo, but in most places in the world, they don't have PCs, they don't have consoles, and they also can't afford, or there's no PC center ecosystem, but everyone has a mobile phone. So mobile esports yeah. in Southeast Asia and Latin America is massive. People don't, it, here people can't appreciate it, but pre-COVID, I can send you videos and stuff, People are filling stadiums of 10, 15, 20,000 people in India, Indonesia, elsewhere, watching five versus five mobile competitive gaming. Massive, like million dollar prize pools uh, of people playing mobile competitive games. So we think mobile is like a huge part of the future of esports. And it will also start to come to North America and Europe where you have a game called Free Fire, which is very popular in Latin America. Free Fire also is owned by a public company, so they report the numbers. Free Fire last year was doing 150 million monthly active players. <laughs> 150 million monthly active players. There's a game called uh, Battlegrounds Mobile India. It's a very popular India battle royale. When it was released, it had 50 million downloads in the first month. Wow. So these are just numbers that are like incomprehensible to people, but like 150 million monthly active players is, is, is you know, it's like four times the population of Canada. So it's just, it, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around these numbers, but this is what's happening. Uh, that is, again, to us, is like this inevitable tidal wave that is going to hit the shore very soon. To, let's say North America. Um, let me. I, I'm going to go back to traditional sports just for a moment because we do focus a sure. lot here on this show about it. So, taking all of this in mind and where your expertise is and what you're seeing happening and the explosion of engagement globally, if leagues, athletes, brands, teams want to be involved and better engaged in this world, what would you tell them to do to try to extend their brands into this modern level of engagement? So you have seen a lot of traditional sports teams come into, frankly, like some of the biggest investors in gaming and esports have been traditional sports teams specifically for the reason that you just mentioned, which is to kind of average down the viewer or the fan of their club or whatever it may be. So in Europe, there's League of Legends franchises. So there's actually franchise teams the same as you have yeah. elsewhere. You pay a franchise fee. Many of the franchises in Europe and also in South America are owned by the football clubs which makes sense because they're, they're, if you're a Brazilian, you're a fan of League of Legends, but you're also definitely still a fan of, of, of soccer or football there, right? So, you know, Flamengo and all the bigger clubs there, they also are the biggest League of Legends team. Like, they own the franchises. 
So they're already kind of doing it and they understand how to connect those audiences. So I think that's already been a big step. And some of the bigger investors in North America and esports have been major league baseball teams and franchises and owners because MLB fans are on average the oldest of yep. official sports. So yeah. the first actually to dip their toe in esports and put real money at work were MLB franchises and MLB owners, which makes sense. So I think it's, I think it's, a bit silly to try to convert your 40, 50, 60 year old baseball or hockey fan to and expect them to become a gaming or esports fan. That doesn't make sense. But trying to take your, your franchise and your brand equity and then bring it into gaming and esports ownership to me makes sense. So like I, I would look at it more as like adding to your portfolio rather than trying to convert your fans. Like it, it, it just frustrates them because we, we did see that a little bit where you have like NFL teams and MLB teams trying to convert their fans to esports fans. And to me, that's just like, I, I, I don't know why you would force that. I think it's a bit of a lost cause. But if you've got the capital and you have the franchise value and you have the ecosystem and you've got the resources also, you can really massively support an esports franchise and a competitive ecosystem. And you can start to introduce your brand equity there. And even if you're introducing it to a new audience, that's fine. At least you're going to keep it alive for the next couple of generations, right? Yeah. So I think that's really the way to look at it. From our perspective. Yeah. Okay. And as this is growing, um, outside of those major name games that you've discussed, where do you see growth trajectory and in, in what ways, in, in what ways will you see financial boon in the metaverse? The examples we've used in the past would be the way that brands are starting to engage. I, I'd say it's more using like digital ecosystems to monetize your, your core product and your core experience. I'll give you a perfect example. Gucci released a handbag in Roblox. So people as well think of Roblox as like the game that their kids play. They don't realize that the average age of someone in Roblox is in their late teens now. And the monthly active player base of Roblox is absolutely enormous. And it's a great place to deploy your brand. So Gucci released their handbags digitally in Roblox and they were purchased and sold for more than the real version of the physical handbag costs. So... Um, to, to us, to eighteen-year-olds, how did that even happen? <laughs> well, there's people in their twenties and thirties that are playing Roblox. Yeah, yeah. Saying, like I, I think people don't realize this is happening. And then you also saw Nike acquired, um, I think it's RZ something something, it's like RZKT or something. But Nike acquired a company that digitizes sneakers, and they acquired that business and they created a whole Nike digital company. Uh, out of the out of the kind of the speakers team, like the SNKRS team, which is the one that does all like the speaker head stuff at Nike's, there's a whole digital team being built now, and they're digitizing all their goods to put them in the metaverse, or basically just to digitize kind of all their IP into um, into online world. And the way that that makes sense is we even saw in Fortnite, where Fortnite was probably early in this, where go back to 2018 and 19 when Fortnite was kind of the hottest thing that was going on right. culturally at the time. Right. And you had the NFL, this is where you're not connecting the sports. You had the NFL doing a partnership with Fortnite where Tom Brady and all the very popular players in their jerseys were available for purchase as skins in Fortnite. And that did like extremely unbelievably well. So I, I think that's what it's about. It's just, it's just transporting more of your IT digitally and trying to figure out how to manifest it digitally as a way to both monetize in that ecosystem, but also connect it to the physical good and have people interested in what's happening there as well. So that's the way that we see the metaverse monetizing is just really just like the next platform to sell your goods. Like nobody should be surprised if Rolex eventually gets around to creating digital Rolexes that are verifiably from that yeah. company. Huh. And I would not be surprised to see major players in gaming and esports want to own those products for their digital characters and then very likely 
their identity that gets attached and associated to it. And then nobody should be surprised when they even buy the real watch. So like this is all going to happen is like, how do you create that continuous thread of consumer experience into a digital world? And the metaverse now as a theme is starting to force that. It's been happening for years, but now the metaverse has like gotten a, a term. So now it's starting to force it on brands and everyone's starting to come up with different ways to do it where Adidas has this huge activation and Nike and everybody, right? So I think, I think that's all it is, is, is like, how do you create a brand thread and continuity and consumer experience story to the internet and to the physical good that people are also buying? It's just making those people connected. It's really fascinating. Steven Sauls is the co-founder and the CEO of Rivalry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. On the next Future Sport Podcast, how are advertisers performing in the major real-life events in the modern consumption era? Historically, was done, you know, pen, paper, stopwatch, and maybe some tears, um, you know, going, going through figuring out the numbers. I think now the opportunity is you can measure that faster, you can measure that more granularly, you can measure that more comprehensively, um, and ultimately more consistently. That's Dan Kalpin, president at Hive AI, which is measuring the impact of advertisement in every way at major events like the Final Four. He and Kyle Fultz from Elevate Sports Ventures discuss their reporting of how brands are benefiting and maybe missing opportunity. That will do it for this episode. As always, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein.